Good Friday, EV Free. Hey, if we could, before we get started, uh, for those of you who have just a few extra seats in your aisle, if you could squeeze in, we still have folks that are coming in that are going to be looking for a seat. So if you have the ability to scoot towards one side of the aisle, um, that would help us out a great deal. Uh, Tonight, we're gathered here to remember a historic event. We aren't gathered here to remember a myth, a legend, a fairy tale, or even an inspirational story. We gather here this evening to remember history, but not just history, one of the most important days in history, but it just happens to be that this most important day in history is the darkest day in human history. You see, when we read about the life of Jesus, we we read about a king, a king that was born in Israel, who traveled the country speaking about the kingdom of God and what it would look like. In fact, this king was so important in history that all four of the gospel accounts recount this moment in which Jesus, surrounded by a multitude of people, approaches Jerusalem. But he doesn't approach Jerusalem as a teacher. He doesn't approach Jerusalem as a rabbi. He approaches Jerusalem as a king riding on a colt and a donkey with a multitude of people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And as he rides towards Jerusalem as a king, cloaks and palm branches are laid before him. It's at this moment that history is at the back of Jesus. The people are at the back of Jesus. Wind and momentum is at the back of Jesus. This is the pinnacle of Israel's history in which Jesus is finally going to become king. But as we enter into this experience tonight, one of the things we find is that as Jesus enters the walls of Jerusalem, the tide is going to change. The wind is going to shift. Excitement is going to turn to agony. Hope will turn to despair in first century Israel. So this evening, before we rush to Easter Sunday, we want to remember this evening. We want to remember Good Friday. We want to remember the day in which Jesus died. This is the pinnacle of everything they've been waiting on for the past three years. They began to follow Jesus before he had a reputation. They began to follow Jesus before he was famous, before his first teachings, and before his first miracles. And it's at this point, when Jesus is entering Jerusalem, that they believe that not only will Jesus triumphantly be king, but they will reign by his side. And as their great teacher as their great rabbi, as their future king enters the city, he begins to teach, but the entire vibe, the entire feeling of the ministry of Jesus begins to change. They can feel the momentum shift in the city. Great hope turns to anxiety. Their dreams begin to slowly, brick by brick, fall apart. In fact, one evening, the the disciples, they're sitting with Jesus And their teacher, their rabbi, their future king begins to make statements that are deeply unsettling to them. They're sitting around a table enjoying 
the Passover meal. And as they're eating, Jesus takes bread and he breaks it and he tells his disciples, this is my body that's going to be broken for you. And in the same way, he takes the cup and he pours it out before his disciples. He says, this is my blood that will be poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. For the disciples and especially for Peter. Peter was the closest to Jesus. These would have been startling statements. They didn't come to Jerusalem to die. They came to Jerusalem to live. They didn't come to Jerusalem to lose. They came to Jerusalem to win. Peter sits at the table with the other disciples, deeply unsettled. What is, what is Jesus talking about? And then he looks at the 12 and he says, not only that, but one of you here is going to betray me. And one by one, the disciples adamantly speak over one another. Surely not me, Jesus. Surely I would never do such a thing. But Jesus says, it's true. What's about to happen is unlike anything that you imagined would happen. Later, after the dinner, Jesus pulls Peter aside and says, Peter, specifically for you, you're my, you're my closest disciple. You have to know that things aren't going to turn out the way you think they're going to turn out. In fact, not long from now, you're going to deny me. And Peter's furious with Jesus. After everything that we've been through, Jesus, I've been with you from the beginning. I've been with you through thick and thin. I've been with you when things were great and when they weren't great. Surely, Jesus, I will never deny you. In fact, if all of the other 11 disciples deny you, you can count on me. I'll never deny you. Jesus says, Peter, not only will you deny me once, In fact, you'll deny me three times. And this sends Peter into a what is going on? This is not the trip to Jerusalem that I expected. But Peter holds on to hope. The other disciples hold on to hope. Maybe Jesus is just having a bad day. Maybe he isn't thinking clearly. Maybe he isn't seeing straight. Maybe he's tired the way that we are tired. And so Jesus takes the disciples to a garden, and the sleepiness of the disciples overtakes them. And as the disciples sleep and dream of victory, as they dream of glory, as they dream of the climax of the ministry of Jesus and Jesus becoming king, Jesus stands off alone, grieved, filled with sorrow even until the point of death. What Jesus is experiencing, he would rather lay down in a grave than experience the anxiety that he's feeling. He would rather his life be over than to experience the inner turmoil, knowing what is coming in the hours to come. It's at this moment in the garden that Jesus knows that he will not sleep again until he is dead. So as Jesus prays and grieves, the disciples sleep. And as Jesus wraps up his prayers, he approaches the disciples and he awakes them. He says, the hour's come. My betrayer is at hand. The Son of Man is being delivered into the hands of sinners. It's at this moment that that soldiers invade the garden led by Judas Iscariot. And they take Jesus away. 
And Peter thinks to himself, what is going on? Why is my teacher, why is my rabbi, why is my king now in chains being taken away? So Peter draws a sword and the soldiers pounce on the disciples and Jesus says, stop. I'm the one you're looking for. Leave these disciples alone. The soldiers release the disciples and take Jesus away and fear strikes the heart of the disciples. They decide this is a moment in which every man will be for himself and they disperse. Except for Peter. Peter was the closest to Jesus. He he imagines that Jesus has an ace up his sleeve. Surely he's being taken to the castle. Surely he's being taken to the palace as a Trojan horse. Ready to take over. Ready to assume his throne. And so Peter follows Jesus first to a pit stop at a religious leader's home, and then finally to the palace of Pilate. The religious leaders bring Jesus before Pilate, says, this man is deserving of death. Pilate says, on what charges? I know the reputation of this teacher. I know the reputation of this healer. Why would you have him dead? The religious leaders give him over and say, because he proclaims to be the king of the Jews. To be the king of the Jews was to assume to the throne of Herod, to challenge the rule of Caesar. But this isn't the kind of Jesus that Pilate has heard of. As Peter watches from the distance, Pilate begins to interrogate Jesus. Is it true? Did you say these things? Because if you said these things, you have to be punished. But Jesus, I I think that I know you, and and I don't think you're like that. I, I don't want to see you... Go through this. Jesus, this is your time to speak up and to clear your name. But Jesus, in front of the religious leaders and in front of Pilate, he says nothing. And even after a long interrogation, Pilate looks at the religious leaders and says, I don't see that he's done anything wrong. I see that this man is innocent. Not only do I think that he's innocent, but my wife believes that he's innocent. It's best if we just let him go, and the religious leaders are furious. So Pilate, being the politician that he is, he has a way out. A festival is taking place, and during this festival, you have the opportunity to release one prisoner to go free. And so Pilate sets up a straw man. He wants the release of Jesus. He wants Jesus to go free because he believes that Jesus is innocent. But ever since Jesus entered Jerusalem, momentum, the people, the spiritual climate has been turning against him. And so Pilate gathers a crowd of people at this festival and he brings out two prisoners. The first prisoner he brings out is Jesus, a teacher, a rabbi. A healer, the kind of man that opened the eyes of the blind, helped the lame to walk, gave speech to the mute, helped to feed the hungry, to give resources to the poor. For Pilate, this is a good man, an innocent. And then Pilate brings out a man named Barabbas. Barabbas is a criminal, Barabbas is a thug. Barabbas is a murderer. 
he sheds blood and he, he causes problems for the people of Israel by inciting rebellion and insurrection against Rome. Pilate knows how this plays out. He has Jesus, an innocent man, and Barabbas, a guilty man. He knows that the crowd will say, give us Jesus back. You can have Barabbas, Pilate. So as the crowd calms, Pilate speaks to the crowd. You get one prisoner. I'll release one to you. Who do you want? Do you want Jesus or do you want Barabbas? And the answer from the audience is clear. It's horrific. It sent chills down the spine of Pilate. The crowd unanimously declares, give us Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Pilate, you can have Jesus. Pilate's He's taken aback. He has no idea what to do. He tells the crowd, what about your king? What about your Messiah? What should I do with him? Their second answer is more horrific than their first. The crowd begins to chant, crucify him. Don't put him in prison. Don't kill him. Instead, torture him. Humiliate him. Parade him in front of all of the people and crucify him until every breath is withdrawn from his lungs. Pilate's shocked. He says, but he's innocent. This is the kind of person that you should let go free. Yet the crowd, hysterically, in an uproar, continues to chant, crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate withdraws. He knows an innocent man is about to be crucified. Something beyond his control, beyond his comprehension, is present. Every spiritual force is pressing down upon the area to see the crucifixion of Jesus. And so Pilate washes his hands. He says, This innocent man's blood won't be on my hands, it will be on yours. The crowd says, not only our hands, but our children's hands as well. Crucify him. So Pilate, to clear his name, simply has Jesus flogged and punished. And then Pilate hands Jesus over to the religious leaders to have him crucified. The disciples have scattered. Jesus has been handed over from Pilate to the religious leaders and Roman soldiers to be crucified. And, and Peter, as he watches from afar, the daunting realization begins to sink in that Peter's on the wrong side of history. Peter imagined their entrance to Jerusalem would mean kingship for Jesus, not crucifixion for Jesus. Peter had a dream of what this would look like. Jesus would sit upon a throne with purple garments, with a crown that would radiate, and he would be proclaimed all throughout the land to be the king of the Jews, and the nations would stream to Israel and worship him. This dream of Peter's now becomes mockery. 
Jesus is handed over to be crucified and the soldiers find a purple cloak and throw it around the shoulders of Jesus. They find a a crown of thorns and begin to squeeze and to smash it into the scalp of Jesus as blood begins to run from his brow. With Jesus that is now bleeding from his flogging, bleeding from the crown and clothed in a purple garment that will soon be torn from him. The soldiers with great mockery kneel before Jesus, saying, all hail Jesus, the King of the Jews. And Peter sees all of this from afar. The soldiers then tear the cloak from Jesus and they bring him out into the public square. They give him a cross to carry, but it's too heavy. He's in too much pain. He's in too much agony. And so they find a man named Simon. They command Simon, Simon, carry this cross for Jesus. And as Simon carries this cross for Peter's would-be king, Peter looks on in agony. As jeers and insults come from the people. Jesus, with the help of Simon, finally makes it to the top of their hill. And stake by stake, hammer by hammer, Jesus is nailed to a cross. And he's put on display for all of Jerusalem to see. This is what happens when you think that your God will intervene. This is what happens when you think that Rome will be defeated. This is what happens when you think that you have your own king. So the insults begin to come from the crowd. They say, Jesus, surely you're the Messiah. Surely you're a king. You went all throughout Israel saving the needy, forgiving sins, surely you can save yourself now. Uh, the criminals that are being crucified next to Jesus join in. Surely this is true, Jesus. Why don't you save yourself and then save us while you're at it? For Peter, as he looks on from afar, he realizes that his dream It's been absolutely destroyed. And Jesus is just a few hours from breathing his last breath. Jesus will hang on that cross for upwards of three hours. Every breath more painful than the breath before it. Every breath more difficult than the breath before it. It's not only the physical agony that he carries, it's the emotional agony that he carries. So Jesus, on this cross, surrounded by all these folks, he screams out in a loud voice, My God! My God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is coming to the end of his life here on earth. And with that scream, it startles the crowd. A silence begins to fall over the area as Jesus 
breathes his final breaths. And as every ounce of blood is pouring out of his body, and every last bit of oxygen is leaving his lungs, he sighs and he proclaims, I have nothing left to give. I have given everything. Father, it's finished. I'm done. Into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. And with that, the crowd grows quiet. So Jesus hangs on a cross and breathes his last breath. Hanging on the cross. Not in a coma. Not in pain. Not in distress. But it's in this moment on Good Friday that we remember that Jesus hangs on that cross dead. Lifeless. With nothing left give. This is the end of the road for Peter. This is the end of the road for the disciples, their teacher, their rabbi, their miracle worker, their hopeful king now hangs, frail, broken, Lifeless on a cross. But when Jesus breathes his last breath, it's a reminder to the world that this is the darkest day in human history. It's the day in which people killed the hope of the world. It's the day in which an innocent man died. It's the day in which the light of the world was snuffed out. In fact, when Jesus breathes his last breath, the text says that darkness came over all of the area. And the ground began to shake. And everybody around the cross was in awe. The soldiers looked up at Jesus with a sign that hung around the cross saying, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And the soldiers proclaim, wow, surely this man was a son of God. But what now? Jesus would Raise the dead to life, but nobody's here to raise Jesus. Peter's on the wrong side of history. As Peter leaves, a servant girl that works for the religious elite, she looks at Peter and says, I, I recognize you. I saw you coming in with Jesus when he was on the cult. You're with him. And Peter says, no, 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 no. That, that, wasn't, that wasn't me. You have me mistaken. And the, but the servant girl, no, no, no. And she starts 
she starts telling other folks, don't you recognize him? Yeah, we, we saw him in the temple with Jesus when he was teaching. He's one of theirs. And Peter says, no, no, that's, you have me mistaken. And as Peter continues to talk, his accent gives him away. No, Peter, we, we hear your accent. You're a Galilean. You were with Jesus. Peter now believes that he is on the wrong side of history. It's better for him to distance himself from this would-be king of the Jews, Messiah of God, king of Israel. So he proclaims, may curses be all over me in my life if I am lying to you. I don't even know the man. And a rooster crows a second time and Peter realizes what he's done. The man who said that he would never leave Jesus. He would never deny Jesus. If all else leave, I'm going to stay, Peter said. And Peter's heart is filled with grief. It's filled with sorrow, so he continues to meet up with the rest of the disciples, and the disciples are in utter fear. They scattered at the garden, but... Now they've found a hideout. And they're hidden inside of a house. Disillusioned. What did we just give the last three years of our life to? Who did we rest our deepest hopes, aspirations, and dreams on? Because that man now hangs on a cross. Fearful of the religious leaders that first brought charges against Jesus, they lock the door and they huddle together completely out of sorts. But there's a rich man on the council. His name is Joseph. Joseph of Arimathea. He was on the council when Jesus was being accused, but the text says he didn't agree with him. See, Joseph of Arimathea, he'd become a disciple. And he was hopeful that the kingdom of Israel would be restored under the rule and under the reign of Jesus. And he sees Jesus hanging on the cross as, as the soldiers approach Jesus with a spear and stick a spear in the side of Jesus just to make sure he was dead, and as they do, blood and water flow from the side of Jesus. Jesus is dead. So Joseph approaches Pilate. He says, Pilate, can I have the body of Jesus? He deserves a proper Jewish burial. Pilate's surprised that Jesus is even dead. Pilate calls in the soldiers and says, is it true? Is Jesus already dead? And the soldiers confirm the news to Pilate. Pilate says, Joseph, you can, you can take Jesus. You can give him a proper burial. So Joseph takes Jesus. Joseph is a rich man. And he has a tomb set aside. Maybe a tomb set aside 
for himself, but because of the honor that he wants to ascribe to their dead teacher, their rabbi that has now passed on. He gives the tomb to Jesus, but before he does, he begins to clean the wounds of Jesus. Jesus with the crown of thorns that had been in his head and the floggings he had received on his back. He sits with the frail, broken body of Jesus. And with a towel and ointment, he sits there cleaning the wounds of his rabbi. And each time he takes the towel and removes the blood and dips it back in the water, he remembers of his crushed dreams, his deepest hopes for Jesus. Spends probably several hours cleaning Jesus. Then begins to wrap Jesus in linen. With every strip of linen he puts across Jesus, he's reminded Reminded that what he anticipated to happen hasn't come to pass. He's just as delusioned and out of sorts as the disciples are. And as he finishes wrapping Jesus, he takes Jesus to the tomb. Probably a tomb reserved for himself. And he lays Jesus in the tomb and he rolls the stone over the tomb. But the tomb isn't sealed The soldiers don't want any trouble. Jesus is dead, and Jesus needs to stay dead. So the soldiers go to Pilate. Say, Pilate, Jesus is in a tomb, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. We saw him, but we need to seal the tomb. Because if the disciples come and they steal the body of Jesus, we will have more trouble then than we had in the beginning. So Pilate says, I I don't want you to just seal the tomb. I want you to seal it as best as you can. Seal that stone over the tomb unlike any stone you've ever sealed. The kind of seal that no one could open. This is my command to you. The soldiers leave Pilate. They roll back the stone for a minute. They ensure that Jesus is still laying in the grave. They walk out and they roll the stone back in front of the tomb. And they seal the tomb shut. Nobody's coming for Jesus. Nobody's coming to take the body of Jesus. Church history, for now thousands of years, has remembered Good Friday. We've remembered Good Friday as the day in which Jesus died. The day in which the hope of the world was crucified. The day in which the light of the world was put out. And so when we walk away from Good Friday, we walk away with deep grief, with deep sorrow, that when we walk out of a space like this, we remember that Jesus 
lies lifeless in a tomb that has now been sealed for the disciples. The dream is dead. Their hope has been crushed. On Good Friday, these are the events that we remember. Years later, the disciple John will be exiled to an island in Patmos. And he'll be writing a letter. And when he's writing this letter, he's having a vision. He's having a vision of worship. And when he sees this vision of worship, the worshipers that surround the throne room, they proclaim, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb precisely because He was slain. And with His blood, He purchased people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. You see, we spend time on Good Friday slowly walking through the crucifixion and the bloodshed of Jesus because later writers and later visions will say this is why we worship because of the cross because of the bloodshed because without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins And so when we walk slowly through the crucifixion, we remember the price that was paid for our forgiveness. And so tonight as we close, we want to close leaving the worship center in silence. Meditating on this reality. See, as we leave this evening... The choir and orchestra are going to play another song. It won't be a song to sit and to listen to. It will be a song to exit to. And if you sit in the the far left sections, there will be communion stations behind you. And if you sit in these right sections, there will be communion stations behind you. If you sit in the middle sections, as you leave, there will be communion stations in the lobby. And we encourage you that as the choir and orchestra play to to head to a communion station. And when you go to that communion station on either wall or in the lobby, someone will be there to say, this is Christ's body that was broken for you. And when you take the cup, they'll say, this is Christ's blood poured out for you. It became the legacy of faith to remember this moment. It's that moment that the disciples began to first see that something isn't quite right. When Jesus sat at the table because Jesus knew it was coming. So he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and he poured it out and he said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins and to bring to fruition the new covenant. And so we encourage you in just a moment when I finish praying.
the choir and orchestra will play. And we encourage you that as they begin, that you begin to move to the sides of the worship center and out into the lobby. We ask you not to congregate anywhere in the worship center, but to leave in silence, to leave in reverence, to leave remembering the price that was paid for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, in this moment, we ask you to come and to do what only you can do. To make the crucifixion of Jesus, the breaking of his body and the pouring out of his blood, a deep and visceral reality for us. That this would be a moment in which we remember the price that was paid for the forgiveness of our sins. And so, Father, as we leave this room in silence, as we leave in reverence, Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts? Would you nudge us? Would you move us to come to a deeper reality of who you are and a deeper, more, more resounding yes to you? A more robust worship because you are the lamb that was slain. And with your body broken and your blood poured out, you purchased every single one of us in this room. And every person from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and every language. Holy Spirit, help us to leave this room well, remembering you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You can begin to move towards communion.